morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, if you know where that's at, you can flip towards the middle, you'll be getting close to it. Um, This week, the focus is on commitments in marriage, and we're studying through the Song of Solomon, kind of looking at this theme. Last week, my dad talked about excitement. That was his focus. And he wanted me to listen to the sermon on excitement from the Song of Solomon, but to be honest with you, I lack the courage. I didn't know what I was going to hear. There's some things you just can't unhear, and so I didn't, I didn't listen to it, right? I'm going to be honest with you. And like five or six years ago, this is a true, true story. I called my parents on their wedding anniversary to wish them a happy anniversary, right? It's early in the evening. I called the home. My dad answered. I said, hey, just call to wish you guys a happy anniversary. What are you guys doing for your anniversary? Oh, son, I'm just, I'm just laying here next to your mother reading the Song of Solomon to her. Really? Did you have to tell me that? Right? I mean, I'm just like, delete, 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 delete. There's some things you don't need to, some things you don't need to hear as a child. So I haven't listened to the message from last weekend, but this weekend, the theme, as we study the Song of Solomon, is commitment. Now, if you're like me, your first thought is, really? Really? We're going to study commitment from the guy who had hundreds of wives and concubines? He's going to teach us about these things? Well, think about it for a moment. I mean, in some ways, he can talk about these things objectively because his plan, if you remember Solomon, his idea was, hey, I'm going to pursue pleasure wherever it leads. I'm going to find it under the sun. That's my big life experiment, and it was an epic fail. Like, it didn't work out for him at all. And so now, as most scholars would agree, the Song of Solomon is being recorded, is being written in hindsight of his, with his first love, this Shulamite girl, this vineyard owner's daughter, and he's remembering this love that they had and what might have been, and so he's able to speak to these things, I think. What I want us to do in the next few minutes is I want us to look at how conflict in marriage will either um, reinforce commitment or it will undermine commitment. See, some of us think that conflict is always bad. Any kind of arguing, fighting, not getting along, it's always a bad thing. That's not true. Sometimes conflict can actually reinforce commitment. It can actually strengthen a relationship when it's handled in a way that honors God. And so we're going to study that together. Um, I was reading a story of a, um, a missionary named Glenn Anst. He was a missionary in China with his wife and his two kids, and they were placed under house arrest for sharing their faith, which is illegal. And uh, they were placed under house arrest, and they were told they were going to be sent back to the United States. So they were waiting for that day. And one morning, a soldier, Chinese soldier, came to the door. He knocked on the door. Glenn answered the door, and this Chinese soldier said, today's the day. You're going to be going back to the United States. I'll come back to get you this afternoon and take you to the airport. Uh, you can only take 200 pounds with you. That's all you get, 200 pounds. So um, you get your stuff packed up and I'll be back. Well, Glenn says that he and his wife had some conflict over what exactly would be included in this 200 pounds because 200 pounds isn't much when you're talking about four people. And his wife said, well, I've got my sewing machine and I've got these vases and some things we've collected in China and clothes. And and Glenn said, well, I've got my computer and I've got my books and the kids had their games and their toys and their clothes. And so they get out this scale and they weigh everything and it's much more than 200 pounds. And so the conflict begins, right? Like there's arguing and fighting. Well, this should go and this should stay and this should go and this should stay. That way everything gets still a lot more than 200 pounds and there's still arguing and conflict. And finally, right, though no one is happy and they're all mad at each other, they've got 200 pounds right on the dot. And so later that afternoon, the soldier returns and said, are you ready to go? 
Glenn said, yes, we're ready to go. And the soldier sees the pile of things that are supposed to go with him to the airport. And the soldier said, did you weigh everything? Glenn said, we weighed everything. The soldier says, did you weigh the children? We didn't weigh the children. Weigh the children. And he just talks about that in that moment, right, there's perspective. There's clarity. In that moment, there's great family unity, right? Everyone agrees. Here's what is important. Here's what matters. The relationship matters. The vases, the sewing machine, the computer, the books, the games, the toys, they might have argued and fought about those things, but in this moment of clarity, they see what really matters is the relationship. That's what matters. The children, keeping the family together, and they have this moment of perspective and clarity, and that's what we're going to do here. We're going to step back, and instead of just specifically addressing different conflicts, instead of addressing the sewing machine or the computer that we might fight over, uh, I want us to get some clarity to understand that the, the relationship is what matters, and the conflicts we have over all these other little things will either reinforce or undermine the relationship. I was reading an article in, U- in uh, USA Today. No, it was actually Los Angeles Times. It was Los Angeles Times. And um, it talks about a poll that was done where they asked 2,000 Americans, what's your primary goal in life? And, and overwhelmingly, the primary goal of Americans was to be happily married. But it's interesting as you read through how they define happily married, it is to be in a relationship where there's no arguing, no fighting, where you always get along and everybody lives happily ever after. Well, that's not how it works, right? And, and in fact, a happy marriage and, and conflict in marriage, these things should go together. When there's not any conflict in marriage, then what happens? Well, you've got someone where bitterness is building up. You've got someone who has an opinion that won't be expressed or emotions that they haven't dealt with. I mean, conflict can be healthy. It can reinforce commitment. So we're going to study this from Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, um, we're on the other side of the courtship, the wedding, and the honeymoon, right? So they're married, and there's this conflict that arises. Chapter 5, verse 2, the bride speaks. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, Solomon says from outside the door. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. It's a bit of a player, I think. And so he comes home from work, and he's talking to his wife, who's on the other side of the door, and saying, open to me, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. And so he comes home, and he is initiating physical intimacy with his wife, and she just wants to sleep, right? And so they're getting ready to have this argument, getting ready to have conflict over this issue, which is so interesting to me, because doing a lot of premarital counseling early in ministry, here's what I found. I would talk to couples about three areas of conflict that they could expect in the early years of marriage. I talked about in-laws, and they'd be like, oh yeah, that's going to be a problem. I'd talk to them about money, and they could see why that might be challenging. But I would talk to them about this area of conflict with physical intimacy, and they looked at me like I was a moron, right? I had no idea what I was talking about, that this is the one area, there's not going to be any problems, and you know, they didn't need to worry about that. But what we find here, and what's true, is that this can be an area, this can be a source that there's a lot of conflict in marriage. And so he comes home from work, and he initiates intimacy with his wife, but she's got her sweats on, and she's been in bed for two hours, and she wants to be left alone. And so he says, verse 2, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of night. In other words, I've had a long day. I have been looking forward to coming home and being with, with you. But uh, he is rejected. So here's what I want us to do. I, I want to stop and talk about some kind of broad areas where there is conflict in marriage. 
chapter 2 of Song of Solomon, there's a metaphor that's used to kind of help us address this. And it's this idea that there are foxes loose in the vineyard, and the foxes must be caught in order for grapes to grow. So, of course, remember that um, Solomon's bride, the Shulamite girl, grew up in, in, grew up in a vineyard. She was a vineyard owner's daughter. And so there's this metaphor that's used of, look, we want the grapes to grow in our vineyard. We want our marriage to be healthy, right? And so in order for us to have a healthy relationship, we've got to chase down the foxes. And I don't know, I've, I have never chased down a fox. I've never thought about chasing down a fox. And if I were to chase down a fox, it wouldn't be in a vineyard. And, and so I don't know what is, you know, really entailed in catching a fox in a vineyard. My guess is it isn't easy right? Like, I'm just guessing that that's a difficult assignment. And so whenever there's conflict in the relationship, whenever we're chasing down the foxes, it's not going to be easy, but if you're going to have a healthy vineyard, it's necessary. So here's what a lot of people will do. They'll say, well, gosh, yeah, there's three or four foxes running around in the vineyard, but there's a decent crop, and we'll just, it's, it's tiring, and it's, it's an annoying, frustrating experience to try and chase down a fox, so we're not going to worry about it. We're just going to let it go that doesn't work. That's not an effective way to go about growing the grapes. And so I want to use that same metaphor to help us talk about the conflict, the foxes that need to be chased down and dealt with. All right, so some broad areas here instead of focusing on specific things. Uh, one area I would say would be unrealistic expectations. A lot, of a lot of conflict comes from unrealistic expectations. We have this idea going into marriage of what it's going to be like. And Hollywood and kind of, you know, movies and <laughs> the narratives of our day sets us up for disappointment in this year. You know, we read about Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast, and they live happily ever after. And so we go into it with these huge expectations that we put on our spouse, and it's setting us up for frustration and disappointment. I had a, a friend of mine who was telling me that he was reading um, Sleeping Beauty to his five-year-old daughter before she went to bed at night. And so he finished the story, and then he ended the story with, and they lived happily ever after. And she said, after he was done reading the story, she said, that's not how it is in real life. And my buddy said, well, what? where did you hear that? And she said, mom. And, <laughs> and that's the truth, right? I mean, the truth is there are challenges, and it's not easy. And, and yet we have this idea that it's, should just, it should just be easy. If it's meant to be, it should just be easy. Nothing of worth is ever easy. Nothing costly is free. It costs you something. Um, and I think the whole dating and honeymoon and, you know, wedding, honeymoon, I think that all of that dynamic in our culture sets us up for some disappointment. Because when you're dating somebody, you're doing things that you would never do in real life right? I mean, you, you're behaving in such a way that you have no intention of behaving for the rest of your life. It's temporary. You're trying to win the person over, right? And so you're on your best behavior, and you're opening doors, and you're wearing perfume, and you're shaving your legs, and you're doing, you're doing all kinds of things. You're not going to keep that up. You're not going to keep that up, but for a while, you'll do that. And so you set up these expectations. And then the wedding is this way. The bride disappears for days before the wedding, right? She's getting, like, I don't know, manicures and pedicures, and her hair is getting done. Makeup is getting finished. Everything is just right. So when I'm doing these weddings, I'll stand up at the front of the sanctuary like so, and I'll have the groom next to me. And one of my favorite things to do is to kind of watch the groom out of the corner of my eye as the bride walks in the doors and comes down the aisle. Because, you know, he hasn't seen her. 
And, um, and she looks beautiful. And so he's, you know, you can just tell. It's very sweet. But everyone in the sanctuary stands up and looks at her. And everyone, everyone is thinking the same thing. I mean, what are we all? We're all thinking she's never going to look this good again in her life. Right? Like this is, this is as good as it gets for her. But he's not thinking that. Like he's thinking, I'm going to wake up to this forever. No, that's not how it's going to go, right? And so you fast forward a year into their relationship and their expectations have come crashing down. And she walks into the kitchen and he's wearing like this V-neck white t-shirt with stains on it. And he's slurping his frosted flakes. It's in like stereo surround sound. And she's wearing zit cream from the night before. And she's got this bathrobe on that's the most modest bathrobe ever made that was handed down to her from like her great-great-great-great-grandmother. And they, they resume an argument from the night before over the finances and how money is tight. And, and there are these expectations that just tend to get um, devastated. And so here's, here's what I know. I know that there are some of you right now and you are frustrated and you are disappointed in your spouse and in your marriage. And it's not what you thought it would be. And here's why. It is because you're looking to your spouse to do for you what only God can do for you. You are looking to your husband and you're looking to your wife and you are saying, it's your job to make me happy. It's your job to meet my needs. It's your job to satisfy me. Well, no, it's not. That's God's job. And if you don't let God do that in your life, then by default, it's going to become your spouse's job and your spouse, they're not going to measure up. They're going to disappoint you and frustrate you and then you're going to put pressure on them or they're going to put pressure on you and under that pressure, things will start to crack and it doesn't work. The Bible says in Romans that there's one hope that doesn't disappoint and it's not talking about your husband or your wife. It's talking about Jesus. And until our hope is in him, then our husband, our wife, our spouse is going to continually disappoint us and fail to meet our expectations. Another fox that gets loose, another area of conflict would be unspoken roles. Um, so this is this, in marriage, we have these ideas of what our husband or what our wife will, will do. Like, what's their job? We carry this into it. Uh, a lot of this comes, we don't even know it, subconscious. It comes from the homes that we grew up in and what our parents did or did not do. And, and so, like, for example, my wife and I, this summer, will celebrate our 18th uh, wedding anniversary. Been married 18 years. And when we first got married, right, my wife came from a home where her dad and her stepdad were very handy with things. Like they could fix anything. They built their own homes. When the oil needed change, they changed the oil. That's just what men did. So she got married to me and thought, I did such things. I don't do such things. I don't know how to do such things. My dad didn't teach me. My dad taught me how to fix my hair. That's what my dad taught me to do. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how to do these things. And so something would break, and she thought, oh, he's going to fix it. No, I'm not. I'm going to pay somebody to, right? Like, or the oil needs changed, and to me, that's what those stores are for. And, and so my dad taught me the doctrine of, you know, home repair. You, all you need is a checkbook and a telephone. If you have a telephone and a checkbook, you can fix anything. And so, and, and so I kind of grew up that way, and she grew up a completely different way. And so we get married, and she has these ideas about what, here's what the husband and what the, I, I don't know how to do those things. But here's my point. In different seasons of marriage, we have ideas that we don't even know are there about what our husband or wife should be doing. 
and, and what they, they should be responsible for. And suddenly those start to come to the surface and conflict arises. One more area I want us to look at. Unanticipated differences. Um, I don't know who said this, but someone said, before marriage, opposites attract. And after marriage, opposites attack. And there's a lot of truth to that. Like, we have this uh, tendency to be attracted to someone who's different than us. And before we're married, we find that pretty attractive. But then once we get married, we find that pretty annoying. And so here, here's what we'll do. We'll just kind of demonstrate this. Um, little test. How many couples do we have in here where one of you is highly structured and organized and the other one is more unstructured and spontaneous? Raise your hand if you're in a marriage like that. Okay, kind of look around. Yeah, causing some conflict here. All right, secondly, how many couples do we have here where one person is a night person and the other person is a morning person? Raise your hand if you're in a marriage like that. Okay, yeah, see a, a lot of us. All right, well, um, how many couples do we have where one person is more outgoing and loud and the other person is more quiet and introverted? Raise your hand. Okay, right, like, and I know which one of you is raising your hand right now. And the other one's like, put your hand down, that's embarrassing. You know, don't embarrass us in public. And, and so we, we're, we're, we're different and, um, in ways that we don't even un, un, understand or anticipate going into marriage. That's why the Bible says this, Ephesians 4, verse 2, be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Here it is. Making allowance or making room or making margin or making space for each other's faults because of your love. Look, we were all flawed. We've all got weaknesses. We've all got areas that, you know what, we're probably going to struggle with it the rest of our lives. So look, in your relationship, you just make margin for that. You say, look, here's the space that I'm going to allow my husband or my wife to be less than perfect. And you'd be humble. You'd be gentle about it. So Solomon comes home, he knocks on the door, he's looking for some attention from his wife. In verse 3, we read that um, she doesn't even get out of bed. She just kind of yells at him through the door, closed door. I've taken my robe off, must I put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? Translation, I've, I've got a headache tonight, I've got a headache. And so at this point, his pride is wounded. It would be easy for him to be defensive, to be demanding. And instead, he gives her space. He allows margin. He, he allows, uh, he makes an allowance. In verse 4, uh, we read, she says, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. In other words, he, he opened the door a little bit, started to come in, but, but didn't come all the way in. Said he walks away. Uh, second part of verse 4, my heart began to pound for him, and I arose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. So she's awake now, and she's ready to respond to him. So here, he, do you see what's happened here? He, he um, his seduction technique did not include putting his wife on a guilt trip, being demanding, or telling her this is your duty and your job, right? Not real effective in the seduction department. Instead, what's he do? He gives her space, he gives her grace, and he gives her a chance to respond to him. Verse 6, she does. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone, and my heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he didn't answer. So now she's responding to him. And now she's gone outside the room, and she is, she's looking for him around the palace. Now, now here's what I would say. Look, in a relationship, someone has to break the cycle of ungrace. Someone has to do it. 
And, and I'll talk to couples, and I've, look, I've, I've been in this situation more than once over the past 18 years, where you're not even sure what you're arguing over. You're not even sure what you're fighting over. But somebody's pride got wounded, so they were defensive, and then someone was sarcastic, and then there's the silent treatment, and it just, and then by the time you kind of sit down and talk through it, you don't even remember what you were fighting about to begin with, right? Because it just gets in the cycle. The cycle of ungrace. And if one person will break the cycle of ungrace, which requires humility and gentleness, if one person will break the cycle of ungrace, the other person will respond. But somebody's got to do that. Somebody has to humbly break the cycle of ungrace. And so he does, and, and she responds. And um, in some ways, this, look, this is, this is an opportunity when conflict arises to model the gospel. And the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, while we had rejected him, while we had pushed him away, that's when he showed his love to us. That's why the Bible says in Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18, it says, God settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationship with each other. And so when, when your spouse is the most difficult, when they are the most irrational, when they are the most annoying, when they are the most frustrating, when they are the most defensive, the most unfair, that is your opportunity to be the most like Jesus. It is your opportunity to model what you have been given because that's how Jesus loved you. When you were like that, that's when he died for you. That's when he served you. That's when he sacrificed for you. So when your husband or your wife is like that, that is your opportunity to be the most like Jesus in your marriage. And to show this is what the gospel looks like. And, and so, uh, verse 7, we see that this uh, woman is under conviction. And it says, The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city, and they beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Now, remember, this is um, poetic language, lots of metaphor. Like, this isn't literal. The watchmen aren't hitting the queen. Right? I mean, like, rule number one for a watchman is don't punch the queen in the face. That's part of the job. But, but here's what she's saying. Look, I'm, I'm looking around the palace for my husband, the king. The watchmen are there, his friends. And, and I'm saying, have you seen the king? Have you seen my husband? And they're saying, yeah, he went this way. He's not quite himself. I, she knows that he's, he's off somewhere. People have seen him, and he's, it's late at night. And, and she starts to feel beat up by it. She starts to feel convicted and, and, um, and just notice how she's changed. You know, she's gone from staying in bed, wanting to get her sleep, to now she's putting his needs first, more concerned with how he's doing. Verse 8, the daughters of Jerusalem ask her, what kind of man is this? And then verses 8 through 16, you just hear this woman speak about her husband in such a uh, oh, majestic way. Uh, I just want to read to you what she says to her friends, to the daughters of Jerusalem. She says, O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. They say, How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you would charge us so? She says, My lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand men. His head is pure as gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven, his eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels, his cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume, his lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh, his arms are like rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness in itself. And did you hear how she's describing her husband? Now look, this is true for husbands and wives. 
they get with their friends and this isn't how they talk. Well, I wouldn't talk this way anyway, but, but they'll say, oh, you wouldn't believe what my husband did. He came home from work and he woke me up and I was already tired and he comes home and he wants me to give him a t- Doesn't he know what I've been doing all day today? Or he talks about his wife to his friends in a negative way, puts her down. It's criticism, negativity. It's not what you see here. She's positive. She's encouraging. And, and look, here's what I would say. In, in the middle of conflict, conflict's going to happen. In the middle of conflict, negativity and criticism it's kind of part of the deal. That's, even if you try not to say it that way, that's how the other person feels. They feel criticized. They feel against, right? But if that's taking place in a relationship that has a foundation of encouragement, oh, it's totally different. Totally different, right? Like if there's criticism and there's negativity in the middle of a conflict, but the days leading up to it have been days of praise and encouragement and support, that's received completely different. But when that encouragement isn't there, then the negativity and the criticism, it's not filtered through that. It's devastating. And the, the, that conflict destroys and undermines the commitment. So look, when there isn't conflict, you've got to be intentional with the words of encouragement. You've got to be intentional with it. Now, I've taught on this some, and I've talked to husbands and wives about this, and here's what I'll hear them say sometimes, right? They will say, that's just not who I am. It's just not my nature to be an encouraging person. By nature, I'm just a little bit more critical. That's just, I, uh, it's just, it's just the way I'm wired. So, I, you know, it's not that I don't agree with you, but I just am not, by nature, a very encouraging person. Well, I don't care if that's your nature or not. That's not really what we're talking about. Like, for example, like how many of you, well, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but how many of you would say it's your nature to wash dishes? Well, there's some of you that have other issues that might say it is. But, but most normal people would not say it's my nature. It's just my nature. I just like to wash dishes. I don't know what it is. I, I mean, it's like I'm waiting for people to get them dirty because I just so long to wash the dirty dishes. It's just, it's just the way I'm wired. I'm a dishwasher. No, but, but it needs to be done, right? Like for the home to run appropriately, then whether it's your nature or not, somebody needs to do the dishes. Look, there are some parts of marriage that may not be your nature, and they may feel like it, it may feel like it's work. Oh, that's okay. Work at it. It's worth it. And so maybe you write down on the calendar, encourage my husband today. Affirm my wife today. Tell my wife I love her today. Tell her she's beautiful. Tell him that you're proud of him today. And you do it. Because that culture of encouragement and support totally changes the filter through which conflict and criticism takes place. And so you keep reading in chapter um, 6, verse 1. Where's your lover gone, most beautiful of women? Of women? And she knows exactly where he is. Verse 2. My lover has gone down to the gardens, to the beds of the spices, uh, to browse in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I'm hoping that's a metaphor. Verse 3. And then she says, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. And he browses among the lilies. So I am his and he is mine. In other words, that this conflict isn't going to change. It's not defining their relationship. They're able to have this conflict, this fight, this argument. And she's not insecure that this is going to be the end because they're having this. I am his and he is mine. Verse 4, she comes to him. But before she even has a chance to speak, he says, You are beautiful, my darling, as Tizra, lovely as Jerusalem. 
verse 5 and following, he, he just kind of repeats to her almost verbatim the words from their honeymoon night. And he talks about her hair, her teeth, her body. Basically, he's saying, I love you the way I did on our honeymoon. In verse 11, um, the woman says, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Here's what she's saying. I, I wondered if the vineyard was still growing fruit. I wondered if our relationship was healthy again. And verse 12 says, Before I realized that my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. So before I even knew it, he had set me back by his side. And so this conflict that they go through, actually, instead of taking away from the commitment, it reinforces it. You know, one of my favorite stories of commitment in marriage uh, would be that of Robert McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia International University for 22 years. At the, at the age of 57, he discovered that his wife had Alzheimer's and her memory had faded and continued to fade over the next few years. Her behavior became increasingly irrational. And, and McQuilkin says that he just found himself torn between two commitments, the commitment to his wife and the commitment to his career. And he wrote that his wife, Muriel, he says, was content when she was with me, but was very discontent when she was without me. And he says, when I would go to work, she would almost always find a way to follow. It was a mile round trip from my house to the college, and sometimes she would walk that 10 miles, or she would walk that 10 times a day, and I'd come home and help undress her, and her feet would be bloody. And so Robert McQuilkin chose to resign from the university presidency and give himself full time to caring for his wife. And I want you to listen to the recording of Robert McQuilkin as he resigns to the faculty and staff, and he describes his commitment to his spouse. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. See, that is, that is the gospel. When in a marriage, a husband loves his wife that way, and a wife loves her husband that way, a love that is selfless, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is full of grace and forgiveness, they are modeling the love that Jesus has for you. 
Now, here's what I know. I know that I can't love my spouse that way if I'm not being loved that way by Jesus, if I'm not receiving it from him. I know I can't give that kind of grace to her if I'm not, if I'm not accepting that kind of grace from him. I can't give that kind of forgiveness if I haven't allowed myself to receive his forgiveness. In other words, I, I can't love her any, anywhere close to where I've been called to love her unless I'm walking in a relationship with Jesus where he's loving me that way. And then when he, I let him love me that way, it overflows into my relationship with her and her with me. And so that's why the first and best step for any of us in our marriages is to turn our attention towards our relationship with Jesus and to receive that love and that forgiveness and that grace from him and to let him be our source of fulfillment and stop putting that on our marriage and on our spouse to meet all these needs that, that, that Jesus wants to meet in your life. And so if you want to talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus, can visit with one of the pastors that'll be down front here or maybe ready to make this your church home um, we'd love to have you as part of this family and again you can meet one of the pastors down front as we stand together and as we worship our great god